Thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is May 17th, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis. I'm on the phone with Todd Campbell, a fool.com healthcare writer. Todd, welcome to the show as usual. Hi, Christine. How are you today? I'm doing all right. I'm getting ready for a trip to Toronto tomorrow, so pretty wired that it's basically my Friday. Oh, excellent. I hope you have a great time. I've always wanted to be up there. I have yet to travel up there yet. Yeah, I haven't been either. So listeners, if you listen to this before I actually go, which is tomorrow the 18th, please shoot me a note at industryfocusatfool.com. I'll take all the recommendations that you guys have for restaurants. And I hear there's a good music scene and anything else that comes to mind. I'll be in Toronto and also Niagara Falls. So that should be fun. <laughs> um, so before I go, we are talking on the show today about two companies that have been incredibly beaten up by traders over the past couple of years and are both arguably value stocks right now. Uh, so we're going to be talking about both Valiant Pharmaceuticals and Gilead Sciences. Todd, which one do you want to start with? Well, let's start up with um, Valiant because of the two, that's the one that's probably been been beaten up most. And um, I know that you know. It, if you you've been an investor in Valiant, um, you, you're probably looking at this stock and going, "Oh boy, what's 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 he going to say next?" I mean, the stock has gone from 260 to about well, it's 13ish now. 13 is change, yeah. Uh, but it dropped below. I think it was like ten dollars or something like that. Uh, eight, you know, and and it's just been really really a tough sledding for the stock. And there's a lot of reasons. We've covered it before, Christine, on the show. Um, and, you know, as a refresher, you know, there was a lot of pushback regarding pricing decisions that they had made in the past that led to scrutiny, that led to the closure of their specialty uh, distributor. Uh, pushback as a result of that and declining sales volumes has caused, you know, income to drop. And as a result, uh, there's been a lot of fear that uh, they might have a, a hard time paying off their debt load. So, you know, heading into the first quarter earnings results, a lot of people were were watching to see what management would say and see if they provide some indication that the corner is turning. And by the reaction the market had, it seemed like people were pretty happy with their earnings, which they released on May 9th. The stock is up 40% since they released those earnings. And on the surface, the, the headline was pretty Good. You know, they had their first profit that they posted in six whole quarters, but there's kind of an asterisk there where they reported a gap net income of $628 million, but that was almost entirely due to this one time tax benefit of $908 million, which was attributed to non cash internal restructuring. So, you know, it's kind of like they're, they're fudging the numbers a little bit, not in a sort of nefarious way, but, you know, there's a huge difference for this company between their gap numbers and their non gap numbers. Right. And you almost have to be a CPA to be able to dig in here and, and figure out what's going on behind the scenes to have to reconcile. Uh, the gap versus non-gap, and to figure quarter for quarter what is going on with the company. You you, you mentioned that they had reported a top-line gap profitability, as you said, that was all due to this one-time uh, benefit from um, the, this tax item. So don't count on that going forward. Uh, you have to kind of x that out. 
Uh, revenue, the top line, did fall again. Uh, it was down 11% to $2.11 billion. Um, so, you know, you still have uh, deterioration, if you will, in the, in the top line. Uh, and we'll get into why in, in, in a minute. But without a doubt, Christine, right, if you were a shareholder going into earnings last week, right now you're smiling a lot a lot bigger than you were last week, especially if you were one of the fortunate ones to, to have been able to pick up this thing at the low. Right, indeed. I mean, this is something where I, I guess if you did time it correctly, you could have made quite a profit. But I do imagine that the vast majority of shareholders are still sitting on a pretty big loss here. I think that that's probably true. And unfortunately, for, for those long term investors who have ridden the stock down, you know, when I dug into the numbers and started really going through the puts and the takes here, um, on balance, I, I had to walk away a little bit unimpressed. I mean, you had. Their their crown jewel is Bausch and Loam, right? I mean, that's 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 their biggest segment. It does you know 1.1 billion dollars roughly in quarterly sales, um, but that crown jewel gained no ground year over year. Uh, sales were essentially flat, uh, if you you know on a reported basis. Sure, if you back out currency, um, operational growth was four percent, but I mean currency is something that these international companies deal with quarter after quarter. The reality is that you know. Sales Bausch and Lomb were, were were flat, and if you dig a little bit deeper, U.S. volume for Bausch and Lomb declined and was offset by some emerging markets overseas growth. So Bausch and Lomb, not you know, we'll, we'll call it a, a push for the quarter. Um, branded RX sales continued to drop there, fell nine percent to six hundred and four million, and then you know because of generic competition and some pricing woes. Their U.S. diversified business got absolutely clobbered. Uh, sales fell 37% year over year to 355 million. And unfortunately, you know, the, the threat of generics is not going away. This is going to be remain a headwind uh, for this company over the coming year. Right, pricing is going to be a huge issue for them because of all the bad publicity that they got way back in 2015 when this whole controversy started about their cardiovascular drugs that they boosted the prices on by hundreds and hundreds of percents. They kind of can't do that anymore, and that was a big part of how they were making money. So now when you look at their portfolio, a lot of drugs are either hit or about to be hit by patent expirations, and they don't really have the option anymore of raising prices to compensate for lower volume. So, yeah, so we have a situation. We've got a company that's still seeing a lot of pressure on its top line. Um, you know, there was a little bit of evidence of some price stability in branded RX, to be fair. Um, so that that's, I guess, somewhat good news. But I mean, on balance, you look at this, and you're like, well, this wasn't that great of a quarter. Why on, why on earth are these stock up 40, 50% since the report? Yeah, and I know you have an interesting theory about this one. Yeah, and it's really all tied to the size of the short position, in my view, and a $50 million bump up in its guidance for the year in EBITDA. Right. So let me take the the later layout, excuse me, latter thing that you just said, and expand on that a little bit. Um, people are very concerned that Valiant is going to default on its debt. It has a humongous debt load, and for a long time, it's been kind of unclear whether or not it would be able to meet this debt. So when they say that they are going to up their EBITDA guidance, that is a great thing for people that are concerned about the debt. And so when you trace that back to the first thing that you said, which was the short position, that is where you start to get people potentially exiting their their shorts. Yeah, you've got to cover. And again, as a refresher, if you're going to short a stock, you're borrowing it from your broker, you're selling it with the hope of buying it back cheaper and then replacing those shares that you borrowed, right? 
So as a stock rallies and people who have sold it short see that happening, you end up getting a, a kind of like a domino effect where, uh-oh, it's rallying. Now I have to cover. Now I have to cover. Now I have to cover. And if you look at the short ratio, which is simply the the percentage of the share amount of shares that are sold short towards the shares that are out there that can trade, it was at a record high leading up to the earnings. A record high. Right, 15%. Yeah. So, you know, it wouldn't take a lot to move the needle here. And and, and it really didn't. I mean, you, the bump up in EBITDA guidance was $50 million. That's nothing. I mean, they went from basically uh, guidance of three point, um, I think it was like 3.5 to 3.65 to 3.6 to 3.75, something like that. $50 million improvement. Um, and, and but But again, you know, debtor, the big thing here is the debt. They have over $30 billion in debt. They've knocked up about $3 billion off of that. Um, and that's good news because what that does is it theoretically uh, improves their interest coverage ratio. And now we're getting really wonky, right? But It's a wonky company. Yeah. When when you've got all these creditors, they want them to know that they, they're going to get paid back. And one of the ways that they do that is they calculate your interest coverage ratio, which is simply uh, EBITDA divided by interest expense. So you've got debt, you're paying interest expense on it. Are you generating enough earnings before interest taxes, deductions, amortization to cover that interest expense? Typically speaking, if you get below two to one, it starts to get you a little bit nervous. Right. Now, so uh, at, at the end of Q1, they were at 1.83, which is below that two threshold, but it is above what their new newly re- renegotiated uh, level uh, is, which is 1.5, which is what their lenders need to see. Yeah, and we could, wow, I mean, there's so many things that rabbit holes we could chase here. Um, you know, they had to renegotiate a lot of these covenants lower because they were going they were going to run into a risk of default because they weren't going to make the two to one ratio, right? So you had various ratios that range from three to one and two to one. They've knocked those ratios down to, to 1.5 to one, so they're still okay. And by bumping up the EBITDA guidance, that led people to believe, oh, okay, if EBITDA, EBITDA improves, then it's less likely that creditors are going to end up knocking on the door demanding payment because that interest coverage ratio uh, falls below the threshold. It gets even more complex than that though, Christine, because you have to look at where that EBITDA improvement is coming from. And frankly, I'm not convinced that it's coming from a, a material improvement in the business. Right. And that's really what it comes down to here, to bring it back a little bit higher level. This is a company that needs to find a way to come up with money. They need to service their debt. And so they can do that by having a better top line, which we've already kind of dug into the different business segments. And that's questionable whether they're going to be able to do that in any significant way. Or their other option is they could sell some of their assets. But Everybody else out there that could be a potential buyer for these assets knows exactly the situation that Valiant is in. And so they're not going to pay a premium for some of these assets. And then you get hit with the double whammy if you're Valiant of, okay, so I'm trying to get a good price for some of my portfolio. In order to get a good price, you need to sell the best stuff. And that's exactly the stuff that is going to bolster your top line. So they're really in a pickle. And Christine, just to make things even, even worse for them, that has a negative impact on EBITDA. So you have to make sure that you're paying off enough debt to lower your interest expense at the same time that you're selling these things that are generating out earnings. And one of the concerns that I have going forward here is they're selling one of their prized assets is Dendrion, which makes a prostate cancer drug called Provenge. 
they're selling that later this year. And their EBITDA guidance, it says right in the report, it doesn't include any benefit. Any, it doesn't include that sale in its calculation. Right. So take out the sales from Provenge, and all of a sudden you get EBITDA lower. Right. And you know, you say, okay, well, they paid down three billion in debt. Um, you know, so their interest expense has to be following. But because they had to renegotiate all of these deals, they ended up having to pay more in interest. So you saved three billion dollars, shaved three billion dollars off your debt, but at the same time, your interest expense actually went up year over year. Now, you know, eventually, hopefully, the maturities. If you look at the maturities on these debt, the debt, they're pretty manageable until about 2020. But you know, you still got, you've got a lot of issues here, and I think it's it may be a little bit premature for investors to look through that report, see shares running, and say. Oh, okay. The corner has turned, and, and the stock is going to go back to a hundred. You know, and it would be easy to do so too, because by almost every metric, this is a very cheap stock. You know, it's really just gotten clobbered by the market. But you know, after having this discussion, hopefully, it's pretty clear to our listeners that it's kind of for good reason. I mean, this could be a turnaround story, but personally, I don't think I would sleep at night if I bought shares of this company. Yeah, it's almost like jumping out, you know, skydiving without a parachute, hoping that someone's throwing you a parachute and you're going to catch it and be able to open it before you hit the ground. <laughs> yes, that, that's accurate imagery. I, I was trying to come up with something like a treadmill, but I like yours better. Let's go with that. <laughs> Anyway, thanks so much to Slack for supporting our podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working lives simpler and more productive. Here at The Motley Fool, we absolutely love Slack. Slack allows you to organize your team and reduce emails, and it has real-time messaging, video and voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives, all in one easy-to-use app that works on both desktop and mobile. So, no more searching through emails or multiple systems to find that one follow-up. Slack saves time and improves productivity by keeping everything on one platform. You can tailor Slack to your work with over 900 apps, and their drag-and-drop file sharing works with all the apps that you already use, like Dropbox, Google Drive, and Trello. My entire team uses Slack every single day, and I cannot imagine working without it. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. That is slack.com. Okay, so we said that we were going to talk about Gilead Sciences, and that was not a lie. It is now time to dive into Gilead. This one hits a little bit ho- close to home for me, Chris, Christine, and I think maybe it does you too. As a shareholder? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a stock, obviously. That is, it's, a, it's a behemoth in biotech, and unfortunately, its shares have fallen from 120 to about 65 since the summer of 2015. Uh, making it, you know, the, the comparison even worse when you look at the fact that the S&P 500 has rallied and has been flirting with new highs. So this stock has gotten clobbered, and um, it's been a tough run for shareholders like me. Uh, and and I have to, you know, c- can we do a little confessional here? Let's hear it. All right, I confess, I made a, a grave error in um, in the way I normally approach stocks. I mean, I, I usually buy stocks, we talked about this last week, based on a particular catalyst. And then when I'm evaluating whether or not to hold the stock, I see if anything's changed to that catalyst. Now, n- normally, if the catalyst has failed to pan out or changed, um, that's a signal to me that I should have sold the stock or exited the stock. Uh, my catalyst did indeed change for Gilead and I did not sell the stock. So um, my cost is, I think, somewhere in the 90s here. I'm down like 20, 25%, something like that. And what was the catalyst that you were looking for? 
I really thought that they their leadership in developing hepatitis C drugs um, was going to allow them to continue to innovate and dominate the market, which they have. Um, but I also felt that they would be able to innovate shorter and shorter treatment duration, uh, getting it down to as little as four weeks over time from the 12 weeks that it is currently. And it does look like that's that's not in the cards. It looks like they're slowing down their efforts to continue to to move the needle in developing uh, new products for hepatitis C. I also underestimated that the negative drag and impact of price concessions they would be forced to make to stay ahead of competitors like AbbVie. Uh, and I also uh, had bought it originally because I, I had some good thoughts that they were going to do well with their can push into cancer drugs. And unfortunately, that that was a bust. Uh, yet I looked at it and I said, you know, this is still a very profitable company and now they're paying a dividend and they've got a ton of cash on the balance sheet. So I guess I'll stick around. Um, obviously, you know, so far, that's been the wrong choice. Well, so the thing is, you talked a lot about hepatitis C, and I think that is what most people focus on with this company. But if you look at what has happened to the company over the course of its HCV life cycle, its first hepatitis C drug, Civaldi, was approved in December 2013. At the time of approval, Gilead's market cap was $114 billion. Today's market cap of $86 billion is 25% lower than that. And so for me, I, I look at this company and I just can't help but think that the market has overreacted to its hepatitis C woes. And you're, you're totally right about cancer not quite panning out, but I don't think that there is as high hope and drama and expectation tied into its oncology efforts uh, necessarily as it was for its HCV sales. Yeah. And, you know, I agree with you in, in some in some respects, I agree with you. But here, here's the problem. We have yet to find a floor on those hepatitis C sales. You know, in Q1, yeah. Revenue came in at 2.6 billion across their hepatitis C franchise. That was down from 4.3 billion the year before. Yeah, that's a 40% decline. Yeah, massive drag. You know, as a result, Q1 total sales were 6.5 billion. That was down 16.5%. EPS fell from 303 last year to 223 this year. Ouch. Yeah, and I, I totally agree that that does hurt. But I think with this company, it's important to remember that they have other things going on. In particular, their HIV products were very good in the past quarter. And that is how this company really made its name. Its HIV and HBV product sales were up year over year in the first quarter, 13% to $3.3 billion. That's a good thing. I mean, sales fell for some of the older products, but it was made up for by the newer ones like Genvoya and Descovy and Audefsi. Right. There's, they've enjoyed a lot of growth, and that's because they reformulated Virion, right? Mm -hmm. So they made it safer, and now they've been rolling out combination therapies that replace Virion in those combinations with TAF, this new formulation. Um, you know, I imagine that we'll probably see a leveling off in sales growth there once all the combination therapies have been launched. Um, but yes, they remain a dynamo in that business. Uh, it's it's a great business for them, and, and it's been a growing business for them. It just hasn't been growing fast enough to offset this slide in sales in hepatitis C. So, I mean, you look at it from an investment standpoint now, and you say, okay, well, we know that HIV is going to be stable to growing. That's good. And we know that hepatitis C is declining, and we don't know where the floor is. So That's we say, bad. Okay, well, what? Yeah, and that's bad. So we say, well, what's the catalyst, right? What's going to cause this stock to get back to growth, right? Because that's what we really 
ultimately we want to see sales grow, earnings grow, shares will follow earnings over time, right? Yes. So okay. we look at it and we say, well, they've got A, a lot of money on the balance sheet, right? I think it's like, is it like 30, 32 billion, something like that? Um, I Huge have this number. right here, 14.7 billion in cash. Okay. All right. And, and that's uh, without their short-term investments. Yeah, and, and securities that they can sell as well. And they spend a ton on research and development. I think their run rate now on research development is like 3.6 billion. So they've, they've got a pipeline and they're working on that pipeline. So you say, okay, well maybe new drugs coming out of that pipeline or acquisitions because of all this cash can spark growth, right? right. So you have, you have the organic side and you have the inorganic side. And when you look at the organic side, like what are they actually developing themselves? They do have some exciting things going on, but it's going to be a while before we hear about any of them. And so that, that's when you kind of get you get this pressure for the inorganic growth. And there has been so much speculation about who is Gilead going to buy? When are they finally going to pull the trigger? And I do think that, at least in the short term, that is the catalyst to watch is what are they going to do with that money? Who are they going to buy? When will they actually make a move to try to bolster their portfolio and get some more internal catalysts to get revenue moving in the right direction before, say, 2020, when they start getting data for all of the really awesome drugs in their pipeline that are not quite ready for market yet? Yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at the, the the lead candidates in the pipeline, you've got what filgotinib, which is the autoimmune disease drug they're working with Galapagos on. Um, data from that should start rolling in, I think, as early as next year, stretching through 2020, depending on the indication in the trial we're talking about. And then there's another one for something called NASH, which is another liver disease. Uh, but again, we won't see data from that until the 2020s as well. So you look at that and you say, "Ooh, okay, well, the, there's not a whole heck of a lot that's going to as far as drugs that are going to hit the market that could really uh, make a big diff deal here. So yeah, what, what would be what would be the M&A target? Can they buy something? And then if they, assuming they can cut a lot of overlapping expenses, maybe they can you know get operating margin moving in the right direction again. But only time will tell, right? We have to see how that plays out. And Gilead is being patient. I mean, they've got the war chest and they've got the money, uh, but there's really no you know, they look at it from an operational standpoint as saying, I don't want to pay too much for this company when three years from now I could get it for a bargain. Well, that and they look at their own company and they say, holy moly, this is cheap. Gilead spent $14.8 billion on shareholder rewards in the past 16 months. $12 billion of that was on share repurchases. So this company is not interested in buying other overpriced assets when it can just buy back its own stock at pretty low valuations. Yeah, although, you know, you take the other end of that coin and you say, okay, is that the best use of your dollars as a, as from a shareholder standpoint, is that the best use of the dollars? So far, it hasn't been, right? Because shares have still declined. Right. So you bought back a lot of shares at a lot higher prices, and has that been the best use of your money? Where if you had gone out and you'd bought something like Medivation or something uh, and kick, to kickstart growth that way, would that have been a better reward for shareholders? Who knows, right? We don't know. The reality is this remains a biotech behemoth. They're not going away. Some point, somewhere, somewhere down the line, they're going to do something that will respark growth. The question will be, uh, how, where will shares be at that point? You know, is this the low? Well, was 80 the low? Was 90 the low? I don't know. Right. And when they do it, we will absolutely have you covered here on Industry Focus. Thank you so much, Todd, for all of your thoughts today. And I will talk to you next week. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy stocks or sell them based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 